Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're in the United States and we're discussing the looming deadline to increase the debt ceiling, otherwise known as the X-date. Discussions so far have failed to yield much common ground, but various participants in various meetings have expressed broad optimism that a compromise will be reached relatively quickly to avoid a sovereign default. Financial markets have been fairly stable, with the news that substantive negotiations were underway adding to general confidence. US equity markets registered gains, the dollar strengthened, and oil prices rebounded on investor optimism that a timely resolution will despite some outlandish headlines, be reached in time. But let's dig a little deeper into the latest debt ceiling discussions. We have two top panellists to do just that for us. First up, we welcome Leslie Falconio, Managing Director and Head of Fixed Income Tactical Strategy within the UBS Wealth Management CIO in the US. Leslie, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Look, debt ceiling, it's, it's grabbing headlines everywhere. It's a topic of conversation. Interestingly, you know, not just in the Beltway, but actually across the US and all around the world, in fact. Before we get into it, give us the, the debt ceiling 101. Just remind us about, you know, the X date, why there is all this uh, uncertainty and why it, why it does make such a such a compelling story. Sure. I mean, you know, the X date, you know, which Yellen has right now is June 1st, is essentially the first day in which the Treasury Department will exhaust all of its borrowing authority and can no longer meet its contractual obligations. So in a nutshell, it's when they have the potential to run out of money. And that's really where the issue comes in in terms of potential long-term impact on financial markets and global markets for that matter. Yeah, well, we'll come to the potential impact in a moment. But I guess the first question would be, just remind us about the the prevailing environment, Leslie, because I guess this is another issue in terms of market risk that we sort of didn't need at the moment. There's other things that are making things challenging, whether that's slowing growth, uh, we've got tightening credit conditions. Just give us a quick summary of what the backdrop is in front of which this latest drama is being played out. That's absolutely right, because a lot of people, when they think about the debt ceilings, particularly with the environment that we're in right now, it shouldn't be looked at as a silo, right? As you mentioned, not only do we have the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates 500 basis points in a little over a year, we have regional bank causing some financial instability in the U.S., we have tightening lending standards, slowing global growth, and really the uncertainty going forward, what the actual impact will be from all of this you know, rate hikes that we've seen over the past year, whether it's on the corporate corporate balance sheet or the consumer balance sheet. Uh, let's talk a bit about the assumptions that people make about the system, about fixed income, uh, Leslie. I guess the, the system is essentially, I, I'm simplifying grossly, of course, but the system's predicated on this pretty fundamental basis. US bonds will be repaid. Uh, they'll be repaid on time and in full. It, the, the fact that this is, I don't know, challenging that assumption, does that justify in any way the kinds of headlines we see? And I appreciate that as a, as a journalist, we have a, a case to answer, but you read about looming catastrophe. There's all these headlines about end days. Um, are those things a fair reflection of the jeopardy or, or actually is that system and all of its assumptions, is it, is it actually more, more stable than those headlines would suggest? You know, we've been through this so many times over the past, you know, multiple decades. And once again, we're having this issue regarding the debt ceiling again. And because, and therefore, we have a lot of headlines scrolling over anyone who watches their, their news station or looks at popular press. Our opinion right now is that the, the probability of a default is actually very low. And we understand, particularly given the polarization that we're seeing in politics in today's environment, that there is a bit more concern because they took a little bit longer to come to the table to start negotiating. And that's 
really why we're seeing this volatility because they are running out a little bit of time. Do we think that they actually will default? You know, we put a low probability to this, but it is that incremental addition that we're seeing in volatility in the marketplace, which is already a little bit volatile to begin with. So when it comes to the U.S. Treasury market, more than likely, even in the unlikely event that they default, that they will prioritize and more than likely they'll, they'll, they'll meet their treasury obligations. I'd be remiss of me not to ask you this, Leslie, even though you have very eloquently expressed the the base case. In that incredibly unlikely scenario, if there were to be a, a default, I mean, just give us a quick kind of recap of what we might expect to see with, as I said, the caveat, the proviso that we don't think that's going to happen. Sure. I mean, first off, obviously, the dollar will decline tremendously. You'll have to see a large drop in the dollar. You'll see a decline in the S&P anywhere hypothetically to 20%. We saw the S&P decline 16% in 2011. There are other factors going on globally which impacted that, but you'll obviously a large decline in, in the equity market as well. When it comes to fixed income, more than likely because of the headwind this will create to inflation and growth, You'll see the long end of the yield curve move down, and 10 years could move, 10 year yields can move down by about 90 basis points. You'll have that front end go higher, particularly given those bills near that maturity date might, might feel a little bit anxiety in terms of being repaid. And so the yield curve will continue to invert. Now, obviously, the growth will go down, but the long term impact of this, and this is really the key, it's not just the, what if they default, it's the length of the default. So if it's a 48 hour event versus a three month, three month event, the outcome is going to vary tremendously. So, you know, either way, you're going to have this really shock to the marketplace and not just to the US, it'll have a global impact. Yeah. And just give me a sense of what the kind of questions that investors ask you, Leslie, I always find this really interesting. You know, are they saying, look, um, do I need to sort of review my whole fixed income uh, portfolio? Uh, do, do the sort of jitters that we, we hear about, are they spreading around? I mean, is it instructive to look at uh, other markets and wonder whether any nervousness does, does spread? Uh, what, what, what are investors saying to you? Well, the fixed income market has a tendency to react before the equity market does. And we're seeing this in this situation currently as well. But when it comes to sort of your, your fixed income portfolio and construction, the most the most common question that we have are, you know, those T-bills that mature at or around that X date, right? There's that concern. And as we know, because of the inversion of the yield curve and the yield that cash has been paying and money market funds have been paying throughout the year, we, there's the investors have a large, you know, what we call cash positioning or, or, or a money market positioning because they're earning such good yield. Now, that's really been the biggest question on the fixed income side is, you know, what do we do with those bills that might be maturing right after that X date? Should we be concerned? Should we move forward? And really, our advice has been, although we do put a low probability on default, if in fact you don't need the money right now for a house or something, then to give yourself a little bit of, of ease or to navigate the potential volatility that we're going to see, roll your bills out forward to try and alleviate that kind of kind of angst that you might see, might see in terms of the bill volatility or the kink in the bill curve. Because again, we don't believe there will be a default, but even if hypothetically there is one, we don't believe the length will be long. We don't feel, I think it'll last for a long time. Uh, I just wanted to ask you perhaps finally, uh, Leslie, I was reading one of the recent reports, I think you co-authored along with Tom about the, the debt ceiling discussions. I think your colleague, Salita Marcelli, who's been on this programme before as well, was another author. And there was a little remark, a turn of phrase, actually, I think in the conclusion 
conclusion that was about investors needing to exhibit a higher tolerance for ambiguity, which I thought was a, a pretty a pretty smart take because there is a lot of nuance, there is a lot of ambiguity. I don't know whose one liner that was out of the three of you, but I thought that was a smart take, and, and that's important, isn't it? Investors need to be canny and they need to avail themselves of all the information, but they also just need to maybe be a little more tolerant to some of the ambiguity that we're navigating. That's absolutely correct. I mean, to, to try and you know, hypothetically trade around a debt ceiling outcome would actually probably end up more of a money loss. And you have to really look at the longer term and most importantly, diversify. And there's, and as we, I mentioned earlier, it's not just about the silo of the debt ceiling. There's so many other variables now that are impacting the financial markets. You know, as we discussed, tightening lending standards, a very hawkish Fed, the uncertainty of what growth will be in the second half of the year. And obviously, we still have very sticky inflation, which is around 5% in the US. So what that ambiguity of the outcome is absolutely true. And you have to really position yourself in a diversified manner, but look for a longer term perspective, not necessarily one month out. Leslie Falconio. Well, next up, let's hear from Tom McLaughlin, Head of Fixed Income and Municipal Securities for the CIO of UBS in the Americas. Tom, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us too. We spoke to Leslie a little earlier. Tom, let me just ask you, what exactly is the X date? It's the date on which these extraordinary measures, basically borrowing from pension trust funds and a variety of accounting maneuvers, are no longer sufficient to meet daily expenditure operating expenses without additional borrowing authority from Congress. So it's the date upon which all of the other machinations that have been undertaken in order to extend liquidity effectively are depleted. These, This is the day on which either we raise additional funds through the sale of obligations, or we potentially begin to default on different types of contractual obligations. Tom, let me just ask you a little bit about some of the sort of uh, assumptions, I guess we call it, that underscore the system, because it is the case, isn't it, that everything kind of works. It's predicated on the basis that bonds will be repaid in full and on time. And so I guess that does explain why we get these headlines about, you know, looming catastrophe and, you know, uh, oblivion around the corner. It's maybe not very helpful for the discourse, but it's understandable why people get so exercised by this, right? Well, it is because most securities on the planet are tethered either directly or indirectly to the price of U.S. Treasury securities. Uh, which has been the global risk-free security benchmark upon which other markets are aligned. So what happens when you remove that anchor? So to some degree, the reason there's so much trepidation and anxiety in the market about a potential default, which I don't think is going to happen on treasury obligations, we can talk about that in a second, but the reason there's such anxiety is that the the anchor upon which other prices for other securities, whether whether it's fixed income securities or even equity securities, is effectively tethered, again, directly or indirectly, to where the risk-free security is, is moving. Whether that yield on that risk-free security is rising or, or, or being reduced has an impact on all financial markets. So if you, if you remove the concept of a risk-free security because there is some question as to whether or not the United States government is going to honor that obligation, it basically creates a lot of agitation. And, and from that perspective, it becomes understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, give us the the base case then, uh, Tom, for you and your colleagues in terms of what you actually think is going to happen, because I know that the default scenario is considered pretty, pretty unlikely. And as well as giving us that base case, just maybe remind us about what are some of the other levers that, you know, the president or Congress might be trying to pull to sort of nudge towards progress before we get to, to, to the X date. Sure. So in the event the Treasury is unable to pay all of its obligations 
on or about the 1st of June, we would expect the Treasury Department to instruct the Fed to pursue prioritization. The Fed's payment processing systems are independent of the Treasury. And so what would happen would be that the Treasury would instruct the Fed to go ahead and would allocate sufficient cash in order to pay Treasury obligations that are coming due, bills, notes, and bonds. Other obligations, other contractual obligations, whether it be Social Security payments or Medicare reimbursements or payroll or military veterans benefits, these would not be paid, or at least we do not think they would be paid. There's really no provision in the Treasury payment system to differentiate between one type of normal operating expense and another, unlike the Fed's payment processing system, which is distinct. So again, the Treasury could instruct the Fed to go ahead and say, here's the cash, pay the obligations. But when it comes to virtually every other type of expense, the Treasury's antiquated system isn't going to be able to differentiate. So that's the concept of prioritization. The obligations from the Treasury would get paid to both domestic and foreign investors. Other obligations would not. Now, in terms of levers that could be pulled, you're seeing some of those levers have been pulled already. We call those extraordinary measures. Those extraordinary measures principally are things or actions like borrowing from pension trust funds, not contributing to future employer contributions to those trust funds, some accounting maneuvers which would delay other types of optional or discretionary expenses. And then, of course, in the last week or so, Secretary Yellen has gone ahead and informed other operating departments to, you know what, we understand we've got obligations like Social Security and Medicare we have to pay, but there's some discretionary types of payments where you've got a little bit of latitude as to when you when we go ahead as a government to pay them, let's hold those back for a while. So that's kind of a lever that's been used here in the last few days to say, you know what, we're trying to reserve as much liquidity as we can so that Congress and the president can try to come to some sort of an agreement. And I'm trying to eke out every additional day I can after the 1st of June. Just one other thing I wanted to ask you, Tom. I did sort of allude earlier to the idea of sort of slightly febrile media coverage we get. Journalists like myself have a, have a have a case to answer maybe. But you know when we get headlines like the, I don't know, last week there was this discussion about, oh, we could just uh, mint a trillion dollar coin and that would be the fix. Is that kind of coverage unhelpful when serious people like yourself are trying to educate the public and your uh, investors about uh, how all these things work? Or is sometimes actually some of these slightly more frivolous uh, angles. Actually quite interesting and, and a good time to kind of shine a bit of a spotlight on a, on a hot topic. Well, you know, discussions about the trillion dollar coin are certainly not helpful and it's not going to happen, but it is kind of a fun diversionary cocktail conversation. This is, this is a bit of an outlandish suggestion. There is some small basis in law for it to be legally, technically possible But it's not going to happen for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Treasury sector has made it clear that she has no interest in pursuing it. The Fed would have to accept such a coin, and they will not do so because it would be political suicide for them to do that. Again, more of a diversionary question, and and it would basically undermine the, the, uh, the faith in the credit of the United States. What's more interesting, the other one that's more interesting, is the 14th Amendment. Now, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution in the United States was passed and enacted in 1868. Among other provisions, it includes a line which says that the validity of the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. That is very clear. It's very forthright. It has never been litigated in the federal judiciary, much less at the U.S. Supreme Court, as to whether or not that allows the president to go ahead and bypass another provision of the Constitution, which I mentioned earlier, 
which is Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, which gives exclusive authority to raise funds to the Congress, to the legislative branch. So you effectively have two different provisions that were enacted at two different times: Article One, Section Eight, in the late uh, late eighteenth century, and then, of course, seventy-five years later, we actually had the Fourteenth Amendment, which was enacted in the context of the Civil War and was really devoted to the notion that the United States government debts would be honored, but the debt of the Confederate states would not be honored. So therefore, a lot of constitutional scholars will say, hey, listen, it goes to the Supreme Court. It's really unclear whether the president does have the authority that the 14th Amendment might suggest he has in order to go ahead again and issue debt in order to carry out his executive responsibilities. But it hasn't been litigated. I suspect in the wake of this current crisis, somebody will find an avenue through which this question will be litigated and it will eventually be decided by the third branch of the U.S. government, which is the U.S. Supreme Court. Tom McLaughlin, bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle Radio. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this program wherever you get your podcasts. And you can discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.